together. Uh, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 14, and so you can turn there. Uh, Genesis chapter 13 um, has really been about uh, uh, Abram and Lot. Abram and, and Lot. Lot is his nephew, and uh, Lot uh, decided to take uh, some land. Abram said, hey, look all, the, uh, all around you. Take whatever you want. If you go here, I'll go this way. And so Abram uh, selflessly gives up um, what he could take, and so Lot takes this area that's close to Sodom, and so he moves close to this very evil city, this very evil place, and he moves there, and, uh, and that's kind of where the, the passage ends. But what we see is we see in Abram, a guy who has come to faith, and he has these moments, these lapses in judgment, but then he comes back, he begins to worship God again, and he begins to make great strides uh, towards uh, worshiping and serving the true God, Yahweh, of the Bible. And so that's, that's where we left off there. Chapter 14, um, I'm going to express it in kind of three different acts, uh, Act 1, Act 2, and Act 3. And uh, Act 1 is really setting up what's going to happen in Act 2 and Act 3 here. I'm not going to read the entire thing because I think you would get very confused as I did many times over as I was uh, preparing for this sermon. And so I've broken it up into a way that I think will be understandable. So we're going to get into the word here in just a second. Uh, I do want to remind you like this, we, we're in the round here. And so if you get up during the service, if you have to, man, please do. We, we don't want there to be any problems. Like if you've got a kiddo with you that's that's crying or stirring or something like that. We encourage you to move quickly out there. Uh, but if, if you could at all stay in your seat, that would be so helpful to me. I'm very easily distracted, and so I and also other people as well uh, are distracted. So I hope that you can take that in a loving way and just understand that we're really hoping to reduce distractions as we're in this setting that's in the round because these people see everything over here and, and so forth. So it's a, it, it's, it has some, some downsides to it. So... We're in Genesis chapter 14. I'm going to read that. Uh, Chapter 14, verse 1. It says, In the days of uh, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasser, Chedorlomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim. Uh, stop right there for a second. Like <laughs> this, this is gripping scripture, I know. Uh, but uh, this is going to be very fun hearing me say all these names. But it's very important. Basically, what we have going on here is got a got an East Coast, West Coast uh, rivalry going on. I don't know if you remember the notorious B.I.G. and Tupac. Uh, <laughs> Getting a couple of laughs. Everyone under the age of. 30 at least, has no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, I I was thinking about this this morning, and I was saying, how long ago was that? Well, that issue, the East Coast, West Coast rivalry with the, you know, between Tupac and uh, Biggie, uh, that was resolved like in 1999, and so that was 20 years ago, so I, I feel a little bit old, but in any case, that's a little bit of what's going on here. There's a rivalry going on. And so here are these uh, four eastern kings that I just told you about. So these are the four eastern kings. These are the east coast guys. Now I'm going to talk about the five western kings. Uh, So it says these kings, and what kings are we talking about? The, The four kings I just mentioned, the four kings I just mentioned, made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemember, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. 
And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Now, I, I want you to see a couple things here. This is, this is just, it's not food for thought, it's just kind of interesting that you have these definitions after a couple of these. Two of these that just happened are, that is Zoar, and then that is the Salt Sea. These are your parenthetical remarks that the author wrote so that his... Um, his audience at the time that he was writing to would understand, oh, that's where that, oh, that, that's the place that he's talking about. So that's why those parenthetical remarks are there. So it says in verse 4, it says, 12 years they, that is the five western kings, the west coast guys, had served or paid tribute to, meaning they were, uh, they, they, were they had to pay this guy Cheddar Lomer. I think the way that you say his name is Cheddar Lomer, but I like cheddar more and so he also sounds like a tasty snack and so uh it's cheddar lomer it is but in the 13th year they rebelled so here's these four kings and they were having to pay tribute to these five kings and it sounds like really that this guy cheddar lomer he was the the head boss he, uh, of the eastern kings he's like the notorious big and so he is the guy that they were having to pay and then but then in the in 12 years it says but in the 13th year they rebelled they stopped paying their dues in the 13th year. So what happens next? Uh, let's see here. Verse 5. In the 14th year, Cheddar Lomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in uh, Ashtoreth Karnaim, the Zumzim in Ham, and, uh, or the Zumzim in Ham, the Eminem in uh, Sheva Kirathayim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, on the borders of the wilderness. They turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in the He Hazazon Tamar. All right. Very clear, right? Can you believe this? Ah, <laughs> uh, man. So, anyway, okay, so what, what was that all about? Whew, what was that all about? Okay, so the eastern kings are on their way to kick the behind of the western kings. On the way uh, to doing that, what did they do? They beat up all of these other guys, uh, Eminem and Zumzim and, and some of these other people. And so what is, this, what is this showing us? Why does the scripture tell us this? Remember that Genesis right here, the, the main character is Abram. And Abram, we're, we're, we're understanding who Abram is. We're trying to get an idea of who this guy is. We've seen him falter when he went to, uh, to Egypt and then when he stopped in Haran and, uh, and all of these other uh, things. Uh, but now we're starting to see him really make some headway in his life with God, the way that he's acting. Uh, is he loyal to Yahweh? That is God's name. Uh, the true and the living God? Is he loyal to Yahweh? Does he live as if his promises are true? Does he love God and others? Does he, what was the last one? Uh, does he look to the Lord's provision in the Messiah? These are, these are key things that Abram is starting to do, and that's what we're kind of seeing come to fruition here. So these five, or four eastern kings defeat all these other guys, and it's a little bit like it's kind of showing us something about these eastern kings. These eastern kings are bad to the bone. These guys do not mess around. They are killing everybody. And it would be a little bit like, you know, if you're on a team that's sort of good, 
and you're finally coming to the end of the season, and you're about to play this other team, and so you start sizing them up. And you start saying, well, uh, who have they played, and who have they beat, and what, what should that look like, and, and, and so forth. But pretty soon you start thinking to yourself, like, hey, that team is really good because they, they killed everybody. They're undefeated. Like, this is, this is pretty crazy stuff. So the text is showing us that these four eastern kings are not to be trifled with. This is not just like some small army. This is, this is a major coalition of nations that has come out and they're beating down everybody. They will extort you. They will do whatever they need to do in order to get after you. Big, big stuff. Verses 8, uh, eight, eight, nine, yeah, 8 and 9 here talks about the defeat of the western kings now. So let's read that. Verse 8. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elasser, four kings against five. So what that just described is you've got the five kings who are now going to, to battle with the four kings. So they're going into this and they're thinking... We got this handled because there's five of us and there's, you know, four of them. So five on four, we've got this handled. It's going to be fine. And so uh, they're, they're going in there. And uh, what happens next? Verse 10. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits. Now this is foreshadowing. It's like, now let me tell you something here. <laughs> in this particular valley that they're fighting in, there's these giant, uh, you know, pits of tar. That are everywhere. If you remember back at the Tower of Babel, what they did was they built this tower with bricks and bitumen. So this tar. So they'd stick the bricks together with, with bitumen and they would put them together. So bitumen pits are everywhere and they're all around there. And so the, the uh, author is saying to us, now keep in mind, there's a bunch of tar pits everywhere. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They got the pants beat off of them. They got beat bad. And they were running, and the kings fell into the tar pits, or those people fell into the tar pits, and then the other guys got away, and apparently they were close to Sodom, and so they went into, you know, these uh, four kings went into Sodom, and they took everything. They took absolutely everything. Verse 12, the plot thickens a little bit. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Now, what we said last week was this. It's, it was pretty clear at that time that Sodom was this immoral place, completely immoral, a very wicked city. Lot moves his tent as close to Sodom as he could possibly be. He gets so close to the sin in his life, he, he puts himself in this position that ultimately what ends up happening, they move in together. They, they, end up, they end up in the same place. He finally, you know, he's, he has made, uh, you know, one compromise after another and then finally ends up, he, you know what, I'm just going to go all the way. I've kind of compromised on this, I've compromised on that, and now I'm just in the city. And we do that. We do that all the time. It's a slippery, a slippery slope theologically. 
when people begin to question the scriptures. When people begin to question, does the scripture actually say this? I mean, I don't remember it ever saying that. It doesn't emphatically tell me not to do that or emphatically tell me to do that. And so they begin to question the scriptures. They begin to say, you know, I'm not sure I really, you know, I, I'm not sure I really believe that. Or they don't even pay any attention to it. Yeah, I'm a believer, but I just don't really, I'm not sure that God really cares that much. God's a God of love, and, and so he'll just, he'll just accept me doing whatever I do, and I'll just do however I want, and I'll just go do it. And that's where Lot is. So Lot is in the middle of his sin. Lot is in the middle of a bad place. Now, later on in uh, the New Testament, it talks about him being a righteous man, which is just shocking to even, uh, to even say that. So Lot is in, is in Sodom, but he's clearly in a bad place. He's clearly in a bad place. And so what is going to happen here? Well, one guy escapes. So Lot is, has been taken captive his possessions and everything are taken away from him, his people. Can you imagine during that day what has happened in that city? Can you imagine? Think about when ISIS moves into a city. That's essentially what we're talking about. ISIS has moved in and has taken over and took everything out, uh, taken the people, whatever kind of slavery that they have going on. I mean, it's, it's kind of a horrific situation. That was Act 1. Act 2, what happens? Well, as I said, somebody escaped. Somebody got away. This, is a, this would be a fantastic movie. The end of that act would end with someone who kind of gets away and runs off into the night. You don't know who this guy is. You don't know where he's going. But then the next scene shows us something uh, amazing, and that is verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who is living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. So one guy escaped. He runs over to Abram, and Abram has got his buddies around him. He's got some allies in that area. He has, he ha, he has some friends that are nearby. Now Abram's got a decision to make. What's the decision that Abram's going to make? Let's think about this for a second. Uh, when somebody in your life is constantly jacking things up, when somebody near you or around you or, uh, you know, a family member, perhaps a close friend, is, is, is screwing up all the time, they're always doing this, they're always doing that, they've put themselves into this position, how do we respond to them? How do we respond when people are continually making poor choices and they, they finally got themselves into a real mess, they, everything's gone, they're homeless, whatever, it is, how do we respond in those situations? Because the truth is, is that if, if I'm honest, what I want to say is I want to say, you know what, Lot's made his bed, now he's got to sleep in it. I can't keep bailing him out. He's never going to learn from his mistakes. And you know what? A lot of times, that's how we view God. Because we're actually Lot. We're actually a lot because we get so close to our sin and then we finally engage in our sin. And we end up in this place where we keep screwing up and we keep screwing up and we keep screwing up. And maybe that's your life. Maybe that's where you've been. Maybe that's how you feel. Maybe you should feel like that because you're not really take, taking notice of where you are in regards to your uh, life. 
But we're in this place where we think about how Lot feels, where Lot is sitting there and he's going, man, I've done this. I did this to myself. And he's thinking, like, man, I, no one should come rescue me. I'm the one who put myself in this position. I'm the one who got myself into Sodom in the first place. No, no one should be coming to rescue me. And, you know, that's how we feel sometimes, too. God, I've, go, I've gone too far. I've done too much. I have, I have gone past uh, the limits of where I was supposed to be. I've engaged in something I should not be a part of. And now you should just curse me and let me die. And sometimes we just avoid it overall. And we say, you know what? I'm just going to avoid God right now. So we stop going to church. We stop connecting with people. That's when you start calling somebody and you're just like, how come they don't, they don't call me back? How come they're not returning my phone calls? How come, how come you're not calling your community group leader back? The, the person who's discipling you, your good Christian friend, perhaps a family member. How come you're not calling them back? It's because you got so close to Sodom that you ended up getting taken captive. And here you are captivated by your sin. And you just say, I don't even want to deal with it because I don't want to have to deal with the fact and tell them where I was or what happened. And so we say, I don't even want to call them back. I don't want to return the call. So what does God say? What does God do? Well, as I said, Abram is growing. Abram is a lot like us. He's, he's this figure who is, he's becoming a towering figure. He's becoming somebody who has immense faith. He's becoming somebody who has incredible stature. And so, what does he do? Verse 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and, and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Now, this, when I read this, I, what really came to my mind was, I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, The Patriot. Uh, do you remember? Uh, you may not know this movie. I'd watch it a thousand times. Really, the first 20 minutes of the movie are, are, are amazing. But here is Mel Gibson, um, who is a, uh, you know, he's in colonial America. And his son goes off to war, goes to fight for the colonial army. And he's there. He's kind of a pacifist. He didn't want his son to go. And so he's, 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 he's like, I've already fought all the wars I'm going to fight. I'm no longer doing that. So here he is making rocking chairs and stuff like that. And he won't tell his kids about his background in war. But his son goes off to war. He comes back and he's wounded. And then the British army comes and finds his oldest son and decides to take him. And one of his younger sons tries to stop this and is killed in that instance. And then it gets good, right? And then Mel Gibson gets the Braveheart face and he's like, he pulls his hatchet out of a you know, out of the, what, the chest, hands guns to his sons. I'm sitting there just going, oh, like, this is amazing. Like, I mean, holy cow, what would I do if my dad said, take this gun, don't fire it until you see the whites of their eyes, aim small, miss small. Woo! You see the look on those kids' faces? Like, it's amazing. They go after these British soldiers to get his son back and to avenge uh, the death of his other son. 
and it's incredible. I think that's what Abram does here. He goes, he goes, lots in trouble, that's it. All right, all right, boys, gather around, 318 of them. Uh, so he's got 318 people in his house. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big, big house with lots and lots of room. What's that? <laughs> yeah, he doesn't have a gun. He's got some spears, got some sharp sticks, uh, some, some, some stones. And uh, he, uh, he goes after them and he, he chases them. And what happens here? He divides his forces against them by night. He defeats them. He pursues them. I mean, these are the kings that defeated everybody. They are undefeated. And Abram goes after them and kicks tail. He absolutely uh, just kills them. And not only that, he brings back all of the possessions. He also brings back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Let's stop for a second. Abram loves God and others. Abram is not sitting there saying, you know, Lot, you got yourself into this mess. I guess you'll have to figure out how to get, it, get out of there. Abram is like God. Abram is, is tender. He loves his kinsman. That's his brother's son. In our instance, it is God who loves his kids. And he loves his kids so much that he goes after us. And he pursues us. And he kills all of our enemies. And he takes them down. He has the ability to do so. He's abounding in steadfast love. He pursues us and he redeems us. See, Abram is like God, but God is better. See, Jesus is the better Abram. Jesus, like Abram, leaves his comfort. Jesus leaves his glory. Jesus leaves everything, and he pursues the one lost sheep. He pursues the person who is walking away from him, who is his own. He goes after you. He goes after me. And he comes, and he comes to this earth. He comes into Sodom. He comes into all of that, subjects himself to pain and suffering and sweat and blood and tears, and he pursues us. Are you in Sodom right now? Have you been taken captive? Jesus is pursuing you beyond what you could ever imagine. Jesus has already pursued you. It's already happened. He's already proved that it's true. And when he goes to the cross, he shows you how much he loves you. He goes to the cross and he shows you exactly how much he loves you. He says, I'm willing to give up everything for you, even in the midst of your sin. Even in the midst of all of the times that you've walked away. Even in the midst of all of the things that you've lied about. Even in the midst of all of the, the ways that you've just denied me over and over again. Jesus loves you that much. See, Abram is like Jesus, but Jesus is better. Jesus is better. One commentator 
says this. He says, take note that this, this great heart was at this very moment like that of Jesus. As Abram was to Lot, so Christ is to us. Jesus did not sit idly by in heaven, waiting for us to deserve redemption. Neither was our redemption painless. Christ left the glories of heaven to come after us. Jesus is pursuing you. He has pursued you. And the question is, will you receive what he has for you? Will you receive his forgiveness? Not will you beg for it, but will you receive what's already taken place, confessing your sins, saying the truth about where you've been? Act 3. After his return from the defeat of Cheddar Lomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. Now, this is like, okay, we haven't heard this name before. You're not going to hear it again. I mean, you will in this passage, but you're not going to hear it again until like Psalm 110. And they won't hear it again until like Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6, 7, and so on. What, what is going on here? So the king of Sodom meets him in this valley. And the king of Salem meets him there. Now, funny that we're talking about the king of Salem living in the city of Salem. Well, Salem means peace. The word Salem in Hebrew means peace. It is believed to be an ancient name for Jerusalem. So it's a shortened version of Jerusalem. In addition to that, Melchizedek means righteousness or king of righteousness. So you have this king who is a king, and he's the king of righteousness, and he's the king of peace. So you have this figure, he's very cryptic, he comes out of nowhere. We'll talk about this more later, not so much in this sermon. But what, what's, what's happening here is we have this guy who's a king, but he's also a priest. Those two things don't normally go together. In fact, they don't go together at all until you get to Jesus, who is prophet, king, and priest. So this guy is unusual. He's not an Israelite. He's thought to be a Canaanite. He's in this area. He's in Jerusalem, which is close by the king's valley. And so he comes out. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. And he is uh, the priest of God Most High. So you have two people. You have king of Sodom, who is the king of a very, very wicked city. And then you have the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Two kings come out to greet him after an amazing win, after an amazing uh, defeat. This guy comes out. He looks like a warrior. People are going, yeah! I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. It is totally amazing because he's on a horse or whatever, the camel, something like that, and uh, that doesn't seem as cool. We'll say it's a horse, okay? So he's on a horse, and I mean, there's blood and mud and all kinds of stuff. I mean, he has just been beating the pants off of somebody and just, 
whatever. Just I, I won't get into the gory details. It's PG. But uh, so anyway, so this is what happens. These two guys come out to meet him. And Melchizedek, this cryptic person who comes out of nowhere, the king of righteousness and the king of peace, does this. It says in verse 19, and he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. That's, that's kind of a, an amazing statement. Okay. Skip down to verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourselves. So two statements here. Melchizedek brings bread and wine. He says, uh, Abram, you're blessed by God who possesses heaven and earth. And by the way, uh, you should bless God. We bless God because God is the one who actually got you this victory. The other guy, king of Sodom, says, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. That's, that's all. That's all. Now, amazing victories, success. You finally get the job. You finally get the raise. You finally accomplish something incredible. You finally get to a point where life begins to take shape. You get the spouse, you get the house, you get the car. You get all of those things, all of these good things are happening to you. And I think every single one of us gets done with that at some point in our life. It could be a moment, it could be an extended period of time, but then we walk into the valley and two kings come out to visit us. And one king says, take it all. Take it all. Just take all the glory for yourself. Take credit for everything that you've done. Acknowledge no one. Because you're the hero. You're, you're, you're the hero. You're the one we're throwing the parade for. You're amazing. And sometimes that parade is just us going, yay me. But we walk out into that valley and there's these two kings. And one of them says, take it all. It's all yours. You deserve it. But then there's another king who's the true king. Because Melchizedek is a type of Christ. A type of Christ is somebody who so fully embodies uh, some attributes of, of Christ, even though he is not the real Christ. He's an imperfect Christ. He's an imperfect Jesus. But Melchizedek represents Christ. And Melchizedek comes and says to him, and likewise, Jesus, the true king, comes to, to us and says to us in that valley, after our success, after things have gone well, after things are finally established, and he says... Blessed be, insert your name, by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And what's he saying? He's, he's saying to me, he's saying, Matt, you are blessed beyond measure by God most high. He is the possessor of heaven and earth. Matt, you have been, uh, uh, you have been uh, incredibly blessed 
by this God. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? And then says something else. Blessed be the God most high who's delivered your enemies into your hand, who's delivered the job, who's delivered the ability to support yourself, who's delivered the ability to have the gifting that you have in order to glorify God, possessor of heaven and earth. So we have these two kings, and we have a choice. We have a choice here to continue to acknowledge God or to finally say, look at what my hand has done. Look at the amazing gifts that I have. Now, nobody does this outright. We do it not so much by what we say, but by what we don't do. It's a sin of omission most of the time rather than a sin of commission. It's something that we leave out. And what do we leave out? A lack of acknowledgement of God. Ever acknowledging what he's done for us or to us or with us or in us. We lack even an understanding of how he has caused us to be in this place of, of victory. I drive out of this parking lot every Sunday and I try to remind myself of that. Because there's days when I'm like, all right, <laughs> felt pretty good about that sermon. And I've got I've to check myself before I get too much further down the road. When I take a right on Front Street up there, I have to acknowledge in those moments, I have to say, God, I, I just don't even know how to say to you that if anything good happened in the sermon, it just could not have been me. I mean, God, if you had seen my notes, you would know, like, these, these were not my words. I, sometimes I want to show you my notes and just say, it's ridiculous, all right? It's, it's, it's really bad. And so if, if anything good comes out, I have to acknowledge that God is so good. He's so amazing. He's so incredible. And then there's sometimes when I, when I get done preaching a sermon, and I, and I just feel like, that was the worst sermon. I don't know that anybody's coming back next week. I don't know that that's going to happen. We're done. Like, let's just close it up, board up the doors. We're done. And then God still does something amazing. Somebody comes up to me and says, that, was, that changed my life. And I was like, that's so stupid. Like, <laughs> so, I mean, somebody told me this the other day. They said, they said something nice. And I, and I said, I, I, I think I did say that's really stupid because I thought that was the worst and they said, I think it was the best. And somehow God does incredible things. So as a pastor, I have, I have this. Because I think it's not, it's not just pastors. I mean, well, pastors deal with this all the time. Because you have all these people who connect with God in some way through you. And if you're not careful, you'll take that as your own. And they're, they're defeating the enemies through the power of God in their life because you spoke a word into their life. And if you're not careful, you'll allow them to continue to think that you're amazing. When the truth is, is that I know what my notes look like. And I know that I can't take credit for it. And then I think about my life as, 
you know, I get into my 30s and into my 40s and God gives me success. He's granted me success in my personal life. And I think about all of the times that I could, I could sit there and I could say, man, look at what my hand has done. Look at all, all of this incredible stuff. I've worked so hard to make this happen. And the, those, those two kings meet me in that valley every time. It never stops. It never stops. And I have not always said the right thing, done the right thing, acted in the right way. There are many, many times where I've missed that. There's many times where God has graciously humbled me through a truly bad sermon where somebody didn't get anything out of it, right? Through a bad financial choice, through whatever. There's many times that God has needed to humble me and he will continue to do so because he's gracious and he's good. We have a choice. And the choice is this. You've got the king of Sodom. You've got the king of Salem. How does Abram respond? It just says very quickly, Melchizedek brings out bread and wine. He's priest of the Most High God. He speaks this word saying, God's responsible for your victory. And Abram just goes, boom. That's right. Gives him a tenth. He takes the spoils, which are rightfully his. I know in our day and age that doesn't seem right, but in his day, those spoils of war that he went and got back, those are his for his taking. The king of Sodom acknowledges that and says, give me the people, but take, take, the, uh, take the possessions. And in reality, the people were his as well in that day. It sounds weird, but that's true. So Abram immediately... Lops off 10% and, and gives it to Melchizedek, who's priest of the Most High God, who is a type of Christ. And why is this? Why is this story in here? Why is it like this? I got to tell you something. Until you give to God out of the spoils of your war, out of the efforts that you have, until you give to God to a point where it hurts, until you give to God, you have not dislocated or dislodged the idea that somehow I can take credit for the things that I've done. And yes, this is, it is financial in our world today. Until you give to God and you say, you know what, I'm going to acknowledge that you are blessed. That, that you are the God most high. You've delivered all of this into my possession. I'm going to acknowledge that you are the one who has given me the gifting and ha has enabled me to get to where I'm at. And I do that through what I give away. I do that through giving God a tenth. It's called tithing. It's one of the first instances in the scriptures. And why does Abram do that? It is to dislocate the idea that this is mine, that I did it, that, I, that, that all of this is mine, and that, and, and that I, I get to take it for myself. He gives this representative of God who is ultimately a type of Christ. He gives him a tenth. How do you be somebody who responds appropriately in success.
I got to tell you, I know of no other way than to, this is the first practical way, and that is to say, I'm giving to God what is rightfully his. I'm giving to him. And not only that, it says in verse 22, but Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. He repeats the phrase and adds Yahweh at the beginning of it. He adds the name of God. He's confirming something. I'm giving something to God, but then I'm proclaiming God. I'm proclaiming God in this instance. He's loyal to Yahweh. Even when it hurts, he lives as if his promises are true. Even when no one else is. He's, he is embodying who God is. He is honoring him with his wealth, with his first fruits. But then what he says is, he says, I lifted my hand to the Lord. So I, by a commitment to God, I have sworn a solemn oath. He says that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. I stick in love that statement. I love it. The king of Sodom comes out to you and says, take the glory for yourself. Take the spoils. It's all yours. You've done an amazing job. You should just believe in you. You're the hero of your story. You're the one that should, should be able to acquire all this stuff. And Abram says, hey, I've sworn to God. I have sworn to the true God, to the living God, I'm not going to take a thread, I'm not going to take a sandal strap, I'm not, not going to take anything so that you cannot say that you made me rich. Now, how do you do that? How do you do that in, in daily life? I'm not sure there's a, there's a clear answer to that because we're not often in that situation. But I can tell you this, that that is a frame of mind that we carry with us. Am I, am, am I looking to get rich off of, off, of, off of this guy or that guy, off of my job? Do I serve my job? Am I going to serve the king of Sodom? Is this, is this, my, is this my true king? Am I, am I serving that king? Because if I'm serving that king, then I'm going to do whatever I, whatever I can to get whatever I can from that king. That ends up being our job many times, men and some women as well. That tends to be our disposition. I'm going to get what I can get. And I'm, and I'm going to try to become rich through whatever it is that I'm serving. But many of us need to take note of this. We need to lift a hand to the Lord, the God most high. And we need to clearly state, not just with our mouths, but with our lives and with our wallets. I have sworn that I'm not taking a thread, I'm not taking a sandal strap, I'm not taking anything from you. Because at the end of the day, God's going to get the glory from me being rich. That means that I go home to be with my family at night. That means that I'm not gone all the time. I'm at home with my family. I'm actually being a parent to my kids. That means that I give glory to God, and that means that the, the other activities in my life do not take precedence over me and dominate my schedule, but I'm giving to God because I'm not dependent on that king. I'm dependent on the true king, the king of righteousness and peace, who is Jesus himself. And so he says this, 
I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner and Eskol and Mamre take their share. Melchizedek is an interesting figure in this passage. And he, he does something interesting back in verse 18. It says that he brought out bread and wine, and I don't think that that's by accident. I think it's very clear why he does that. It's because he's, he's so prefiguring who Christ will be as he comes as the king of righteousness and peace, meaning you get peace through this king. You get righteousness through this king. You don't get peace through serving the other king. You don't get righteousness serving the other king. You get the spoils of, of war. You get, you get all that stuff. But you don't get peace and you don't get righteousness. You only get peace and righteousness through this king. And when you have placed your faith in him, what happens is that that peace becomes yours. That righteousness becomes yours. It's yours forever. You get the peace of God and you get the righteousness of Christ that's indwelling in you because you serve that God. But it's, it's not just that it's that simple. See, Melchizedek brings bread and wine because of Jesus later on at the Passover, as he institutes the Lord's Supper. It says this in Luke 22, verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup, which is the wine, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this, divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Why does Melchizedek bring bread and wine? Because he's prefiguring Christ. And what is Christ doing? Christ is show, he has an object lesson. He says, do you see this bread? Do you see this wine? Do you see what's going on here? This is my body and it's going to be broken for you. And this is my blood which is being poured out for you. I want you to do this in remembrance of me. I want you to remember what I have done for you in order to give you peace, in order to give you righteousness. I want you to remember that you, not only that you desire peace, but that you need peace with God and with your fellow man. I want you to know and understand that you need righteousness and the Son of God was brutally beaten he was brutally crucified. He's so much better than Melchizedek. He was brutally beaten. He was brutally crucified for you. And Jesus says, I just want you to remember me. 
when you go to that valley, I want you to remember what I did for you. I want you to remember me when, you're, when you've moved into Sodom. When you moved in together before you were married, when you started that relationship that you shouldn't have started, when you took that job that you know you shouldn't have taken, when you took the promotion, when you knew it was going to take you away from your family, and now you're in Sodom, I want you to remember, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus says, that's how much I love you. You don't have to beg. You don't have to plead. I've already gone to the cross for you. I've already done it. It's yours for the taking. The forgiveness and the grace of Jesus Christ on the cross gives you peace with God and a righteousness that allows you to stand before him. Even though you've been in the midst of Sodom, even though you've gone into the valley of Siddim, and you've said, you know what, I'll take the spoils. Some of us need to come to this point where we say, I'm in Sodom right now. I did take the spoils. And I need Jesus. The proof that he wants you. As he bled out and died, he gave his body and his blood for you on the cross. Won't you receive it? Won't you take it? Let's pray. Jesus, there's so many of us in, in this room, I think if we're honest, that probably all of us can recognize our need for you, that we need to remember you. So, Lord, I'm just praying for your conviction, that it would come over us. Lord, I pray that you would soften the hardest heart in this room. Lord, that you would show us your incredible mercy that we see a glimpse of in the life of Abram as he goes after his nephew and saves him, redeems him. Lord, I pray that we'd see your incredible sacrifice in the bread and the wine. Lord, I pray that we'd look to you earnestly. Lord, that we would seek after you with our whole heart. Lord, for the, those of us that need to give up a relationship, Lord, I pray that we'd understand that, that that's serving ourselves. It's taking the spoils of war rather than giving to God what is his. Giving, giving to you what is yours, I should say. So Lord, we ask you, we ask you for humble hearts that seek after you and that are willing to repent. I pray that so much for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.